God's Word and open it with me again to the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to be looking at chapter 32. We'll begin in the last verse of chapter 31 in just a moment. But we'll be looking primarily at Deuteronomy chapter 32. In the 18th century, there was this British pastor who published his own hymnal. It was full of praise songs that he had personally written, and very quickly this new hymnal became very popular. There was one song in particular, however, that went largely unnoticed. It was number 41. The name of this song was Faith's Review and Expectations. Anybody remember that song or ever sung that song? Faith's Review and Expectations. Can we all agree that is perhaps the worst title to a song ever created by anyone ever? Well, for 120 years, almost nobody sang this song. And all the hymnals that were published in Great Britain in the 18th and 19th century, only one hymnal even bothered to include it. But then years later, someone in the United States got a hold of that song and said, hey, this song ain't bad. I mean, the title stinks, but we can give it a new name. Let's sing this song, and what will we call it? How about Amazing Grace? And all of a sudden, that song that was ignored for over a century became perhaps the most popular hymn in the world. Well, we're going to see something very similar in the Scripture we're going to study this morning. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses is about to die, and Israel is about to enter the Promised Land. But before they go in, God already knows that they are not going to get there and live happily ever after. God already knows that they will turn away from Him, they will worship other gods. They will forget about God's kindness and all of God's blessings. And therefore, God gave Moses a song, and he told Moses to teach this song to the people. It's like God was saying, this song is going to tell them what they're going to need to know when that future time comes. Moses doesn't know when this time is going to come. He just knows that it will come. You see, this song is rather unique in Scripture because it was written not for the people who heard it for the first time so much as for future generations. This song was specifically written for people who had not yet been born. Maybe there's a song that you grew up singing, and you never really gave the lyrics much thought. You just like how it sounded, and so you listened to it every time it played, and then you would sing along, and eventually you knew all of the words, but you didn't think about the meaning and then years later, you heard that song again, and suddenly it hit you what that song was talking about. 
Having grown up in the 80s, there are songs that I sang and I still know the words today and I am embarrassed to know what that song was really about. On the other hand, there are some songs I grew up singing in church that at the time I did not and could not understand. But then years later, I heard that song again and all of a sudden that song had meaning. I understood what it was about. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, God wants Moses to teach this song to the people so that they will teach it to their children who will then teach that song to future generations, that generation that has forgotten the Lord so that one day they'll be singing this song that they grew up singing, but they hear it again and all of a sudden it will hit them and they will finally understand what it means. And of course, this song is about Israel, but I cannot help but think as I read these words that this song is about us as well. Maybe we are that generation that has forgotten the Lord. Maybe we are that generation that needs to be reminded of certain things. This morning, we're only going to look at the first half of this uh, song. We'll look at the rest of it next Sunday, Lord willing. But in this first part of the song that God gave Moses, there are three things that we are uh, to remember, three things that uh, it intends to remind us of. First of all, it reminds us of God's unchanging character. God's unchanging character. Look at the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. So God gave it to Moses. Now Moses is going to give it to the people. They've never heard this song before until Moses himself introduces it to them. Chapter 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And hear... O earth, the words of my mouth. Give ear, O hear. Now, all scholars agree that in Hebrew, he's using legal terminology. It's as if God is calling his people into his courtroom, and God calls as witnesses the heavens and the earth. Why? Because all of creation obeys God's command except for us. The sun, moon, and stars do exactly what God tells them to do. Uh, the winds, the seas, the clouds, they move about as God tells them to. Even the birds, the fish, the beast of the field, even they must obey the command of the Lord. And the point is, just as creation obeys God's voice, so should we. There's this song maybe you've heard. It says, if the stars are made to worship, so will I. If creation still obeys you, so will I. If the mountains bow in reverence, so will I. If the oceans roar your greatness, so will I. If the wind goes where you send it, so will I. Well, this is one of the lessons that we are supposed to learn from creation. This future generation, however, they did not obey. So in verse 2, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, 
as raindrops on the tender herb and as showers on the grass. This is the effect that Moses' song is supposed to have upon them, not to scorch them, not to burn them. It is meant to refresh them just like the dew and the rain and the showers. And by the way, this is not the main point here, but I do want to point out something that Moses refers to his song as my teaching. The purpose of the song is not to entertain them, but to teach them. So many times we evaluate a song based on its melody, based on its style, based on how it sounds. But the most important thing about any song is what it teaches us about God. Moses refers to the song as my teaching. Then in verse 3, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. I proclaim, he said, the name of the Lord, not just any name, but Yahweh, the I am. Because when we use God's name, we are saying very specific things about him. We are repeating what God has personally revealed about himself. Because God is not uh, whomever we might invent or imagine. Moses makes some very specific statements about this God, Yahweh. Every one of these statements that we're going to see in verse 4 is another reason to praise him and trust him with every single area of your life. Verse 4, just this one verse, I want us to read this verse out loud together. He is the rock His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. You'll have a hard time finding another verse, a single verse in the Bible that tells more about God and who he is than verse 4. And he is called the rock. This is the first time in Scripture that God is called the rock. By the way, at no point in all of the Bible is man ever referred to as the rock. Someone needs to tell Dwayne Johnson that. God is the rock. That title belongs to him and no one else. God is called the rock because the rock implies permanence. Imagine a large mountain, a hurricane will pass over it and it doesn't move an inch. And lightning might land all around it, but it doesn't even flinch. Likewise, When the storms of life pass over us, he's like that rock. He's unchanging. He's faithful. He stays the same. And God never flinches in the sight of evil. Moses said, his work is perfect. That means God never makes a mistake. Now listen, God never makes a mistake, not when death comes early. Not when the trial comes unexpectedly. 
Not when the child has a disability, not when the test is positive, and not when the money runs out. God is the one whose ways are always perfect. He never makes a mistake, and he's called a God of truth. Every word of God is true. In fact, God defines truth all by himself just by who he is. There is none of this your truth versus my truth business. doesn't exist. There's just God's truth. Because he is the God of truth, that means his every call is the right call. You know, some of you guys spent six months watching football, just to get down to the last minute of the last game and some ref blow it. Hey, you know I'm right. Well, folks, God is the only referee who is always true. He gets every single call right. He never has to be reviewed, and he never has to reconsider. He's the God of truth. Moses said, for all his ways are justice. And he said he's without injustice. In other words, not even a little. Righteous and upright is he. God is never unfair. He's never unjust. Sometimes we don't get it. We don't see it. Sometimes we ask why. There's this old song that says, we will understand it better by and by. And when that time comes and we are able to look back and when we are able to see and know what God sees and knows about our lives, we will conclude what Moses said in verse 4, that there is no injustice with God. Now remember, Moses is teaching Israel this song so that a future generation that will have forgotten God might remember who he is. I wonder how many times in our lives do we needlessly worry and how many times do we fret, how many times do we doubt all because we have forgotten just who God is. And maybe just like this generation, we have forgotten, maybe we need to remind ourselves of God's unchanging character. And the implication is, if we will remember who God is, then we cannot help but praise Him and serve Him and obey Him and love Him. A forgetful people need to remember God's unchanging character. But then we go into the next part of this ancient song and we see God's faithfulness to His people. Even though God is all of these things, this is how this future generation responded. Look at verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish or their transgression. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Many of them are part of the, the people of God. They've heard the word of God. They've seen the power of God. But Moses says about them in verse 5, they are not God's children. 
Israel may have been God's chosen people, but not every Israelite was a true believer. This is like the person who grows up in church and knows all of the traditions and can sing all of the songs. They hear all of the sermons, but they do not know Christ personally. They are not his children. The same thing can happen today. Well, Moses calls them a foolish and unwise people because it is foolish for them and it's foolish for us to turn from this God who is the one person in the universe who knows you and loves you more than anyone ever has or ever will. Is he not your father who bought you? Moses asked. By the way, this is one of the few times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father. Jesus did it all the time in the New Testament, and that was a big deal. That was a radical thing. But in the Old Testament, it's rare. Moses said, he's your father. And let me remind you of some of the things your father has done for you. Some of the ways your father has been faithful to you. He says in verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you when the most high divided their inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. God gave Israel a very favored place among the nations. But let me just ask you a question about verse 8. Who is it in verse 8 who divided the nations? Who is it in verse 8 who separated the nations? Who is it in verse 8 who set their boundaries? The Most High did. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens, when he preached at Mars Hill, you remember what Paul said, God made the nations, he appointed their uh, times, he set their boundaries, God and not the United Nations, God and not Vladimir Putin or any other tyrant in the world today, nations come and go according to the sovereign purposes of God. Look at verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, meaning Israel, is the place of his inheritance. There are a number of verses in the Bible that uh, say that the Lord is our portion. Verse 9, however, turns it around and says that we are God's portion. Just imagine that there's an inheritance that is being divided, and one heir gets the house as his portion, and then another heir gets the cars as his portion. Maybe there's another heir who, who gets all of the artwork as his portion. Well, what portion does God get in all of this? What does he desire? What does he want? Well, verse 9 says that we are God's portion. His portion is his people, those who believe, those who've been redeemed, us. This is how God sees us, 
And this is how God treats us. We are his portion, not because we're so good, but because he is so loving. Verse 10 says, he found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He circled him. He instructed him. He kept him, notice this, as the apple of his eye. God came to Israel in a desolate place when they had nothing to offer and God did everything for them. I love that last statement. God kept them as the apple of his eye. You've heard that phrase, someone will talk about some guy or some girl being the apple of someone's eye. Where does that come from? That comes from the Bible. And the Hebrew literally says, the little man of his eye. I know that doesn't sound near as romantic, but literally in the Hebrew, that's what it says. The little man of his eye. And it says that because when someone is looking right at you, if you look close enough, you'll see your own reflection in the pupil of their eye. The apple of his eye means God doesn't just see us. He gazes upon us. To be the apple of God's eye means that we are the center of God's focus. It means his eyes never depart from us. It means he sees and he knows every struggle, every thought, and every fear. God doesn't take his eyes off of us because he loves us so much. Look at verse 11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. This is not the only time in scripture that God is compared to an eagle. We saw this back when we were in Exodus chapter 19. This particular word for eagle is the Hebrew word nesher. And there's several things we know about this kind of eagle. This eagle was very large. It would build its nest way up high off the beaten path in places where it would be very, very hard for a predator to reach its young. Now, if some predator were to reach the nest, the nesher has a very heavy beak and strong legs and super sharp talons. If that nesher happens to catch you near its nest, I hope you know Jesus because you are about to meet him. The nasher will rip you to shreds. They are vicious. And there in that nest, the nasher watches over the eaglet. It's completely dependent upon its mother in the nest. All it has is whatever the mother provides. There's one very specific thing that the eagle does that is mentioned in verse 11. Moses said, it stirs up or it shakes its nest. Well, why does the eagle shake its nest? Because sometimes that eaglet gets comfortable. And one day the mama says, 
I love you, but you got to go. And she'll begin to violently just shake the nest. Of course, the eaglet has no idea what's going on. And eventually, the shaking just gets so violent, the eaglet falls out, and it's falling towards the ground. It's getting closer and closer. He just knows that he's going to die. And then the mother eagle just swoops in and catches him and lifts him up on her wings. This happens again the next day. Maybe the same result. And then one day, that eaglet is falling. It stretches out its wings, and it says, Whoa! I can fly. Who knew? Well, Moses said, what that eagle does for its young, God does for his people. Just like the nasher, God provided for them when they had nothing. He gave them a manna to eat. He gave them water to drink. He defended them from the predator of Pharaoh. And then in the wilderness all these years, you know what God was doing? God was shaking their nest because he was preparing them to spread their wings so that they would fly into the promised land that he promised to give them. Now let me ask you a question. Has God ever shaken your nest? Maybe he's shaking your nest right now. And when it happens, it is not comfortable. It is not fun. God does it because, like that eagle, he's preparing you for something. Well, what was God preparing them for? Verse 13 immediately tells us. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine the blood of the grapes Moses is describing in so many ways the land which remember they have yet to enter. He's talking about how wonderful it's going to be. And you know, you could really summarize these two verses if you wanted to by writing in your margin beside verses 13 and 14 the word abundance. This land is going to be better than you can possibly imagine. And that didn't mean they would never have problems. It didn't mean their enemies would never attack, that they'd never have to fight any battles it means that God did have many blessings, many good things in store for them. And remember, he's writing for a future generation. The generation that will one day experience these things, but then forget that all of these blessings came from God. And he teaches them this song, and he passes it down to them so that they will know and believe one day when they sing the words and it finally hits them, God really is the source of our blessings. He really does know what is best for us. But to do that, we must stop and see just how faithful God has been. A generation that's forgotten God needs to be reminded of his unchanging character, needs to be reminded of God's faithfulness to his people, but also... God's response to our rebellion. 
God's response to our rebellion. Look at verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Jeshurun was a term of endearment. You know how it is when you really love someone and you have a pet name for them. This is God calling Israel by one of his pet names, Jeshurun. Most scholars believe it means the one who is upright. That's what Israel should have been after all of the things that God had done for them. But instead of being upright, listen, Moses said they were fat, thick, and obese. He's talking about spiritually, not physically. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the danger of prosperity, how, it, how there is this danger when you experience prosperity, the danger of thinking that you are the one who did it. There's another danger, however. It's the danger of thinking you don't need God at all. And so the picture in this verse is a picture of a fat cow or lamb or goat who enjoys his food so much and eats it for so long, he gets fat and then forgets where that food came from and in verse 15, it says, you grew fat and kicked. It actually kicks the one who came to feed it. We have a phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. That's what they were doing. That's what this particular generation had done. They grew fat on God's blessings and then kicked at him. Verse 16 says, when they did so, they provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Notice they provoked him to jealousy. This is not a selfish kind of jealousy. This is a holy jealousy. And yes, there is such a thing. Did you realize that 30 times in the Bible, the Bible talks about the jealousy of God for us? He's jealous because he loves us, because he has the right to be our first love. Look at verse 17. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Isn't it amazing how similar people are today? We think something is better just because it's new. God knew that this future generation would choose to worship these new gods that the Canaanites served and offer them sacrifices. And I want you to notice, I mean, it's not very politically correct, but he doesn't refer to it as, a, as another religion or an alternate religious system. He didn't say, as long as you're sincere, hey, whatever. No, he tells them the truth. He says they sacrifice to demons. These are demonically inspired belief systems. They may be attractive. 
that may seem new, although they're not, might be popular, it might be cool, God said, it's demonic. Anything that turns you away from the worship of the one true God. And then in verse 18, of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. This was their problem. They forgot who God was. They forgot what God had done for them. They forgot where they came from. And I believe that most of us, including most of us in this room and watching this message right now, I believe that most of us underestimate just how quickly we can forget God. Listen to me very carefully. Spiritual forgetfulness. I'm not talking about physical forgetfulness. I'm not talking about what happens when you, when you forget where you put your keys or you forget somebody's name. No. Spiritual forgetfulness is something that you must intentionally and continually attack in your life. You must be intentional about it, and you must do it again and again and again. You say, well, how do I do that? How do I attack spiritual forgetfulness? Well, you do it by giving thanks for all that God has done. You do, for it, you do it when you praise Him. You do it when you recite your testimony and tell others what God has done for you. But spiritual forgetfulness is something we have to attack, something we have to assault on a daily basis because it can happen to all of us. God's response to their rebellion, it was jealousy, it was anger. But praise be to God, that was not his only response. You see, God responded to their rebellion and God responded to our rebellion by sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He lived the life that we should have lived, a life of obedience, a life without sin. He took the punishment for our sins and he died the death that we should have died when he laid down his life on the cross. And the wrath of a jealous God was placed upon him. And Jesus did that so that whosoever believes upon him can be God's people and know him and love him forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song that you gave Moses to teach the people thousands of years ago. And now here we are in 2022. We don't know what the music sounded like. We don't know what the melody was. But we can read the words. And just like that future generation that would need to be reminded of these things, we confess, Lord, that we need to be reminded of these things as well. We need to be reminded of who you are, your nature, your character, and the fact that you do not change, that you are perfect and you are always the same. And we need to be reminded, God, of just how faithful you have been to us and all of the good things you have done for us, things that only you could do. 
But God, we also need to be reminded that when we turn from you, when we rebel from you, you are a God of jealousy, a holy jealousy, because you love us. You are a God of wrath because you're holy and you hate sin. But we thank you, God, that even though they rebelled and we rebelled against you, you loved us so much, you provided a solution, and you were willing to send Jesus Christ from heaven to earth to die for us and to rise again so that whosoever believes upon him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, God, how we thank you for that. Would you remind us of these truths that we've looked at today? God, would you help us to be intentional about attacking spiritual forgetfulness? That we would make that determination within ourselves that we will remember you, who you are, and what you have done. Because forgetfulness happens so quickly, and it happens so easily. Oh, Lord, we pray, let it not happen to us. We thank you and we praise you for who you are, for all you've done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.